Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jacob Fenston. In this week for Rebecca Shear. It's been more than 100 years since President Teddy Roosevelt coined the word muckraker, mocking journalists' intent on digging up dirt. It's been over 40 years since Richard Nixon resigned after dogged investigation by Washington Post reporters. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. Bringing down a corrupt politician, shining a light on society's problems, these are the stories that win Pulitzers. They're the gold standard of American journalism. But today, we're going to do something a bit different. Enough about problems. We're going to look at solutions. Well, solutions to problems. Ideas that people are trying out, sometimes successfully, other times not so much, to address things like poverty, pollution, and high housing costs. We'll start with a tough problem with no easy solution. You have a child, you're doing what you can to be a good parent, but you also have an addiction to alcohol, heroin, whatever it is. You realize you need treatment, but you think, What's going to happen to my son? This is a question Lynette Daniels faced 18 years ago. On June 20th of 1997. She'd been struggling for years with alcoholism, but now she had to choose between going to the residential treatment program her counselor said she needed and staying together with her 7-year-old son. It's a decision people face every day. In D.C. over the past eight months, more than 750 women with children have sought help from APRA, the D.C. agency that links people to treatment. Lynette had tried to pull her life together on her own, but on that Saturday morning in 1997, she realized, You need some help, Lynette. You've tried it for how many years to do it by yourself? It started out a bad day for her back then. A bad day meant total hopelessness. Whether it's raining, snowing, whether the sun is out, whether it's hot or cold, it's um, a belief that this is a hopeless day. But that day she found a phone book and a phone number for APRA. She was referred to a detox program at D.C. General. A counselor recommended a longer residential treatment program but she'd have to be separated from her son. That was uh, one of the most difficult decisions that I had to make. The counselor asked, couldn't her son stay with family, her aunt and uncle? They won't keep him. They're not going to have to, you know, they have their own life. They're retired. The counselor said, why don't you just ask? And I did, and it seemed like it would be one of the most difficult calls for me to make, but I called, and my aunt and uncle said, if it will help you get yourself together... The transitional housing she went into was in an old row house on 14th and Harvard in northwest D.C., run by the group Samaritan Inns. We're running short of pillows. Late last week, workers were getting ready to reopen the house. It will now welcome women in recovery and their children for up to six months. Those, those are doubles, and that, oh, that goes in the end. Oh, the idea is that women like Lynette won't have to make that tough choice and more will choose recovery. Judy Ashburn is the director of residential treatment at Samaritan Inns. The need is so great because the mother will try to manage her addiction on her own, and usually it just gets worse and worse, so that by the time the children are really grown, then her her addiction has grown to the point that it's much more difficult to treat later in life. 
And if women can bring their children into treatment, more families will stay together. And of course, we want to keep families together as much as possible. Brenda Donald is D.C.'s Deputy Mayor for Health and Human Services. She says in D.C., some 40 percent of children in foster care are there because of substance abuse in the family. And so if a family, a mom typically has an addiction, if she can be supported towards recovery with her addiction and keep her children with her in a safe and nurturing environment such as this place, then the chances are that that family will stay together. Mom will be more motivated to continue with her drug treatment, and the kids will get to continue bonding with her. An analogy that I like to use is being on an airplane. Babette Wise is the director of the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Program at Georgetown Hospital. They always talk about putting the oxygen mask on the parents first and then take care of your children. You have to be alive and well to be there. She says programs that keep kids with their parents can remove a barrier to getting treatment. Because a lot of times mothers will use their children as an excuse for not getting the help that they need. They feel that their priority is their children. And I will tell them that anything that they put in front of their sobriety, they could lose. They need to get well. That has to be first. The city is partnering with two nonprofits that both launched programs for mothers and children this week, the one at Samaritan Inns in Northwest and another across the river in Northeast. Both aim to help homeless and low-income families. Some of this is still a mess. So we're still doing some work and getting the getting the building ready. Ann Chauvin is the chief clinical officer with some, or so others might eat. She's showing me around their newly remodeled building on Minnesota Avenue Northeast. So two mothers will sleep in here, in this center room. Two families will share each apartment, the mothers together, the children in two separate bedrooms. One of the reasons why um, there haven't been providers doing it is it's, it's an expensive service, and It's complicated. It's not just the extra space for kids, but staff to work with mothers, children, and pregnant women. Doctors, nurses, uh, therapists, uh, licensed addiction counselors, it it costs a lot of money. The programs are funded by Medicaid and money from the city. Expensive, yes, but cheaper in the long run. So says Norma Finkelstein, a pioneer in this sort of treatment. She started one of the first programs in the country specifically for women and women with children back in the mid-1970s. She now runs the Institute for Health and Recovery in Massachusetts. Of course, it's more expensive because you have children on site, but it's nowhere near as expensive as basically children being in foster care, prevention of future child abuse and neglect, prevention of kids growing up to be future alcoholics and drug addicts. And she says research on these programs shows women stay in treatment longer, are less likely to relapse, and become better parents. It can help break the generational cycle of addiction. For Lynette Daniels, getting treatment was good for her and her son. I was fortunate enough that he wasn't placed in a foster care or home with people that he didn't know. On Sunday, she celebrates 18 years clean and sober, and she's still close with her son. He's been at every anniversary I've celebrated except one. He's been on the journey and is my biggest supporter. She now works for the organization that helped her. She's the director of transitional living at Samaritan Inns. Good afternoon to everyone. Thank you all so much. This week, she helped cut the ribbon on the new program for women and children. We have a big scissors. We sharpened them up just before, and here we go. There we go. 
These two new programs together will serve about 30 families at a time for stays of two to six months. But is that enough? In D.C., there are about 1,000 homeless families, and roughly one-third of people who are homeless struggle with substance abuse. You can do the math. Here's Judy Ashburn again with Samaritan Inns. What I'm hoping is that what we've done here can be replicated all over the city because it's just such a small piece of the need. We'll head now to Baltimore, to a neighborhood known as Sandtown, Winchester. Sandtown's been in the news a lot lately. It's the place Freddie Gray called home before he died after being injured in police custody. As you probably know by now, the neighborhood is dealing with some serious challenges. It has more residents in jail than any other census tract in Maryland. The unemployment rate is nearly double that of Baltimore as a whole. This is especially striking because 25 years ago, the city invested huge amounts of money and effort in the area. Residents and politicians hoped Sandtown would become an example for other neighborhoods and cities facing similar problems. Hans Anderson looks at what worked and what went wrong. Sandtown Winchester is a neighborhood full of row houses, some old, some boarded up, some rehabbed. Outside of one home is Wanda Fuller. She's watering her lawn this morning. When Fuller bought her Sandtown home in 1992, it was new. She was making somewhere around $22,000 a year. To really be blessed with a home, to own your own home with two daughters, single parent, that's a blessing. Fuller's house is a Nehemiah home. There are blocks and blocks of them throughout the neighborhood. You can tell them apart from other homes for a few reasons. First of all, they just look newer than the rest of the houses, but they're also very uniform. Two stories, brick with five windows and a small front yard. Fuller could have bought a Nehemiah home in the neighborhood she grew up in, but she chose Sandtown. These were being built first, and I guess I wanted to get my home first <laughs> sooner. So it, it was really a blessing, and um, the, you know the, the whole process... You know, picking out your carpet and picking out your house. You had opportunity. I had opportunity to even get the bigger ones, the corner ones. But I chose the middle one. The houses were prefabricated and brought over to Sandtown on trucks. This was in the early 90s, and at the time, they cost $62,500. They were accompanied by a package of low-interest mortgage financing for first-time home buyers and classes on credit and financing. Homes like Fuller's were the bedrock of an ambitious urban renewal project. It started with home ownership, but expanded to include more health programs in the neighborhood and better employment and education opportunities for residents. When we moved in these homes, they promised so much, but I think they didn't really deliver on it. The they in this instance? Well, it was a bunch of people. This was a project of then-Baltimore Mayor Kurt Schmoke and developer Jim Rouse. He designed Columbia, Maryland and Baltimore's Inner Harbor, among other projects. Rouse's company, the Enterprise Foundation, was involved, along with the organization Baltimoreans United in Leadership Development. The effort was going to be run by residents, so there were churches and community groups working on it as well. All in all, this group was going to take a neighborhood in which 40% of the residents were living below the poverty line and transform it in a serious and meaningful way. It would be a model for how to revitalize neighborhoods around the country. Craig Jernigan was on the ground providing services during this time. 
1994, he started as a volunteer in Sandtown. If you do the history, if you look back on it and the things that we were, we were tackling in Sandtown, you would see that this was a real, this was a, this was a monumental kind of like task and, and, and effort that was going on. Jernigan worked with kids and eventually community building in partnership group that coordinated the efforts in the neighborhood. It was an exciting time. Um, we, we would go through the community with different um, initiatives where we were embraced. You know, one, we were from the community, the mass majority of those who work in Sandtown, as far as um, the block by block on the ground, were from the community. So we were received with open arms wherever we went in Sandtown, Winchester. Jernigan points to a number of people he worked with who got jobs, working for the city of Baltimore or in other parts of the country. There was excitement and a sense of community at the time. He bought his own house in Sandtown. And I had a vision that one day that the community would be one of the premier communities in the United States of America. So I had that, that vision or that dream that it would be there. It would get there one day. So where is that neighborhood today, 25 years after that effort? Jernigan doesn't believe it's fulfilled his initial dream, at least not yet. And if you look at the data, it backs that up. Peter Rosenblatt is a professor at Loyola University in Chicago. In a study, he looked at different neighborhood indicators in Sandtown, Winchester in 1990, 2000, and 2009. And we wanted to see sort of 20 years after what changes had happened at that neighborhood level. There were some discouraging changes. Unemployment rose from about 18% to 21%. Median household income fell by about $1,500. But the percentage of residents who received a high school diploma increased, and the percentage of residents living below the poverty line decreased. But when Rosenblatt compared Sandtown to other neighborhoods, he couldn't tell if the positive changes were caused by the revitalization effort. One clear success of the efforts in Sandtown was home ownership. Just under a quarter of residents owned their own homes in 1990. Today, more than a third own their homes. The increase in home ownership is certainly... Significant given the the history of redlining and denied access to credit in the neighborhood uh, historically, um, like many other predominantly African-American neighborhoods, Sandtown Winchester was systematically denied home ownership opportunities in the post-World War II era. But many of the programs started in the 90s just faded away. There was a beginning to this project, but no clear end. Mayor Kurt Schmoke left office, and Jim Rouse, a driving force behind the effort, passed away in 1996. Ultimately, a decade of work wasn't enough to overcome the magnitude of problems that face Sandtown. Peter Rosenblatt again. The findings to me just just point to how entrenched these issues are in our in neighborhoods like Sandtown. It's it's uh, there challenges that really remain in the neighborhood. For Sandtown resident Wanda Fuller, the community she bought into isn't as cohesive as it was during the 90s, and she doesn't know her neighbors as well. She remembers a time when there would be block parties on her street. She would paint faces, her neighbors would play music, but then there was a shooting at a block party. Fuller says it was someone from outside the block, but they haven't been able to have another since. It has changed, because back in the 90s, it was like, it was, it was excitement. Fuller was one of the strong believers in the future of Sandtown someone who bought into a program that was never fully completed. I'm Hans Anderson. After the break... Anyone who thinks that this was a NIMBY issue or opposition to the affordable housing project has it wrong. The Virginia church that demolished its sanctuary to make way for high-rise apartments. 
and the beginning of a new era in local politics, at least in Montgomery County, one that could give minorities and minority parties a better shot. It purports to level the playing field, but of course it does no such thing. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Jacob Fenston, in today for Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. All of our stories this week are about potential solutions, solutions to addiction, to urban poverty, to pollution, and in the case of our next story, to the high cost of housing. Over the past 15 years, more than 390,000 D.C. residents have moved to Maryland or Virginia because of how expensive it is to live in the city. But the close-in suburbs are pretty pricey as well. Virginia reporter Michael Pope brings us a look at a potential housing solution that many faith groups are now trying to replicate. Lord, so transform your people. It's a typical Sunday at First Baptist Church in Clarendon. That we truly might be a light to the world. That's Pastor Jim Johnson. And what the kingdom is all about in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This could be any church in America on any given Sunday except for what's over the church. About a decade ago, faced with an aging congregation and a crumbling building, leaders here at First Baptist Church decided to do something drastic. They sold the air rights over their church to a housing development corporation, which worked with Arlington County to create 70 affordable housing units. Then they demolished the church and built a high-rise, part sanctuary, part housing development. It was certainly revolutionary and and, uh, something that took a little bit of time to wrap everyone's head around. Marsha Modishad has been a member here since 1994. I sort of deferred to what the older, two elderly members of the church thought about it. I was so surprised to hear that they were mostly on board with it. They wanted the church to survive on this corner, and they were willing to step out in faith. The story of how a Baptist church became a model for affordable housing units starts back in 2002. Deacon Rob Ryland says during a retreat that year, church leaders talked about selling off the property and walking away. The building is only a block away from the Clarendon Metro Station, and they were considering offers of up to $10 million dollars. But they didn't take any of those offers. Instead, they decided to create a nonprofit development corporation and sell the air rights to build affordable housing over a new sanctuary. We were not going to move forward on this project and create a turkey in the middle of Clarendon or a project that was going to wind up with a hole in the ground and us going bankrupt. The idea was not simple. It involved getting officials at the Arlington County Government Center on board. To make it work, they would need to change the zoning, increasing the density and allowing for a taller building. State Senator Barbara Favola was chairwoman of the Arlington County Board at the time. You know, people were worried, oh, you know, my view will be blocked. Well, nobody ever guaranteed you 
a view <laughs> when you bought into a particular property. For county officials, it was a no-brainer. The church got to stay in Clarendon, and the county ended up with 70 units of dedicated affordable housing. The county board approved the upzoning, increasing the value of the property to finance the deal, allowing the government to subsidize the units over the church. Rob Ryland thought all the pieces seemed to be falling into place. And the lawsuits um, started almost immediately after that. Four lawsuits, to be specific. Anyone who thinks that this was a NIMBY issue or opposition uh, to the affordable housing project has it wrong. That's Peter Glassman, a neighbor in Clarendon. Standing on a sidewalk outside the church, he says he was never opposed to affordable housing. We were clear then, I'll be clear now, that was never the issue. It was the way the county went about the project, the upzoning. The court eventually declared that the county violated its own zoning ordinance by approving the plan. So the county board changed the zoning ordinance and the church started from scratch. Meanwhile, the bottom fell out of the housing market and Rob Ryland and others at the church began having serious doubts. This project died a dozen times. And it is, I I believe, a miracle that the whole thing happened. The miracle came in the form of an election. And after President Obama was elected, as part of the efforts to reinvigorate the economy, the tax credit rules were changed so that instead of tax credits, you were given cash. And all of a sudden, the project worked again. So church leaders put together a financial plan, and then they hired an architect, and then they applied for all the necessary permits. And then, Ryland says, they had to make a very difficult decision. One of the things that was one of the most difficult decisions in the project was to allow the wrecking ball to tear down our sanctuary while the lawsuit was still pending. They were about to demolish their church with a lawsuit pending, and, they didn't know this at the time, another on the way. Some of the members raised serious concerns. Among them was Sharon Williams, who was married at First Baptist Church in 1977. And I did have a lot of emotional ties. I was married here. Um, my in-laws had been members here. I mean, my husband, my late husband, had been here. Um, uh, well, he had been here since he was four years old. So this was, you know, 50-some years that he had been a member here. So it was, uh, it was an emotional time. But the congregation took a leap of faith. Then the wrecking ball came, and then Glassman's lawsuit was dismissed. The high-rise was constructed, and people moved in, some in dedicated affordable housing units and others in market-rate units that helped finance the deal. Barbara Favola was able to talk about the project when she campaigned successfully for the state Senate a few years later. You know, we had to say this was a win-win. You know, the community is fine with the project now. Nobody is complaining. Well, not quite nobody. Peter Glassman says the uneasiness caused by this project may have started a trend that's brought massive political change to the county. Perhaps some of the remedy is a political one that we're now seeing as there will, after this fall, only be one of those four board members around. Although some of the neighbors are still unhappy with the project, the idea that a church could use its property to provide affordable housing has created a spark. Some of us went over and took a look at it and thought, hmm, yeah, we could do this, maybe. That's Kat Turner, senior warden at the Church of the Resurrection in neighboring Alexandria. She says her congregation was inspired by what happened in Clarendon, and members are now seriously considering a similar idea with their property. They're currently trying to figure out if they can make it work financially while growing their membership. Some of the things that we thought might happen, because of it, we've learned that doesn't happen. For instance, people who live in the apartments don't generally join the church. 
churches across the region are also taking notice. Some are closing their doors for good and using the land for affordable housing. Others are trying to replicate what First Baptist did and figure out a way to combine a ministry with a housing complex. Back inside the sanctuary at First Baptist, Deacon Rob Ryland points out that the church's ownership of the land is sandwiched between earth and sky. Although the church owns the ground floor and all the pews, it sold the rights toward the heavens and the underworld. So above, above that ceiling, all the way to the sky, belongs the Housing Corporation. Everything from where your feet are right now, down to the center of the earth, belongs to the Housing Corporation. That's a housing corporation with serious influence. Not only is it inspiring churches across the region, it's also considering a new program to start offering grants. That might allow other churches to offer their own solution to the affordable housing crisis one unit at a time. I'm Michael Pope. We're going to turn now to an issue that's at the heart of both local and national politics, how we fund our political campaigns. In Montgomery County, the next election for the county executive and council isn't until 2018. But that contest will mark the beginning of a new era. It'll be the first local election in the D.C. region where candidates can choose public financing. And as Maryland reporter Matt Bush found out, potential candidates started learning how to use that system this week. The Republican Party hasn't held a Montgomery County elected office in close to a decade. But about a dozen members of the GOP showed up on a Monday night in Rockville for a meeting about an election that's still three years away. Uh, I might note, to start out, that contrary to popular myth, Michael and I are not the only Republicans in Montgomery County. That's Republican Dick Jurgeny, who ran for a county council last year. He's joking, but his wisecrack gets at the truth in Montgomery County politics. There are actually more registered independents than registered Republicans, and Democrats hold all countywide elected offices. And if you're already in office, chances are good you're going to hold on to your seat. Groups tend to favor incumbents. Phil Andrews spent 16 years on the Montgomery County Council before giving up his seat to make an unsuccessful run for county executive last year. One of the last bills he pushed for during his long tenure set up a public financing system that'll kick in with the 2018 election. To take part, a candidate can only accept individual donations, and those donations are capped at $150 each. The number of donations you need to qualify for public money varies depending on which office you're seeking. Individuals, especially small donors, are more likely to give to challengers. That is a recipe for more competition. And if a public financing system favored incumbents, there'd be a lot more public financing systems in place around this country. Andrew says those who are elected now rely too much on big money contributions from wealthy individuals and interest groups. And as a result, the public either doesn't feel that government is representing them or, uh, in many cases, they have reason to question how people vote. There are also questions about whether public financing could lead to more diversity in Montgomery County politics. Seven of the nine members of the county council are white, 
and seven of the nine are men. That's in a county where 52% of the population is minority. This is a good system for challengers and for folks that are not tied into the power structure. The county system is similar to the state of Maryland's public financing option, which is available only to candidates running for governor. It was largely forgotten until last year when two gubernatorial candidates used it. Democrat Heather Mazier's strong third-place finish surprised many in the primary. The other candidate ended up surprising just about everyone. Larry Hogan, who last I checked, was occupying the governor's mansion today. That's Montgomery County Council President George Leventhal, a Democrat who says Hogan's stunning upset victory shows that publicly financed candidates can win. But Hogan's fellow Republicans, like this resident who spoke at Monday night's meeting, are skeptical public financing can work at the county level. So I want to give you a scenario. Let's say I'm running for county council. I can only raise a thousand bucks, okay? which a lot of Republicans have trouble doing. They have trouble raising money in this county. And my Democratic opponent can raise 50 grand and get the public financing. Um, shouldn't there be a mercy rule? Like, I, I watch, no, when I watch football, and I'm saying, like, like I would say that if the, Republic, if the one candidate can't raise any more than 10 grand. Republican Dick Jurgeny ran for council last year and isn't optimistic that public financing will help a lot. Had this bill been accompanied by term limits, such as Prince George's, St. Mary's, Anne Arundel and Howard counties already have in place, it might be argued on the grounds of fairness. After the meeting, the power of incumbency in a campaign was still on Jurgeny's mind, even more so with this week's closing of one of the few media outlets that covered Montgomery County politics. The incumbents have a, uh, a major benefit because they're in the paper almost every day. Two of the nine members of the county council are in their fourth terms, while two others, as well as County Executive Isaiah Leggett, are in their third terms. But 2018 may see fewer incumbents running, at least for the offices they currently hold, if Leggett decides to retire as expected after his term ends. Many of those longtime council members, like George Leventhal, may run for executive, opening up their seats. Three years out, though, Leventhal hasn't made up his mind yet if he'll run for anything at all. In every one of my four campaigns, I've had to devote an inordinate amount of time to fundraising. And um, I, I don't think that's the time best spent. I, I'd rather spend my time reading and studying and meeting with my constituents, listening to my constituents, responding to my constituents, and not asking them for large dollar amounts. Leventhal and his former colleague Phil Andrews both voted for the public financing option. But Andrews adds as long as public financing remains just an option, not the rule, those who use it face a tough climb. Well, it means you have to work a lot harder to raise the same amount of money because it takes longer to raise $100 from 10 people than it does $1,000 from one person. But it will be another three years before it's known whether public financing makes public officials look more like the public of Montgomery County. I'm Matt Bush. When I feel like I've been losing I tell myself again What I do is my own choosing I'm gonna find a way to win Find a way Find a way In a minute, he once created a bowl to keep your cereal crispy. Now, inventor Robert Frischel is turning his attention to a more serious problem. Right now, I am working on a way which I hope 
will eliminate human pain with no side effects. And transforming human waste into fresh produce, it could be the future in D.C.'s community gardens. Nothing sells the product more than bringing a beautiful bowl of strawberries to a meeting and popping a few in your mouth. That's just ahead as our show all about solutions continues here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jacob Fenston in for Rebecca Shear. Our theme this week is solutions, and our next story focuses on a solution to something that most of us would probably rather not discuss sewage. Technology has made wastewater treatment plants better and better at cleaning our byproducts, shall we say, and making sure the nastiest bits in wastewater don't make it back into our rivers and streams. A few weeks ago, we told you about D.C. Water's plan for turning poop into power, but there's another part of that equation the utility is trying to solve, turning human waste into fertilizer. The idea isn't a new one, but getting urban gardeners to use the stuff, that could take some convincing. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has more on the debate. Fecal fertilizer would be a fun name for what we'll be talking about, or maybe poop potash. But no, we're about to get into something that actually involves quite a bit of high-level engineering, and neither of those suggestions would help sell the product. So of course, there's a term of art, biosolids. George Hawkins, the CEO and general manager of D.C. Water, puts it this way. Uh, Biosolids mean to me a resource. Um, What we're trying to do here at D.C. Water is learn from the genius of nature, where the waste, waste in quotes, of any one organism is the food for another. That's the genius of the natural cycle. Chris Piott, D.C. Water's director of resource recovery, says the utility has trucked Class B biosolids to local agricultural facilities for years. Class B biosolids still have detectable levels of pathogens and cannot be used on home lawns or gardens, but can be used in some commercial farming situations. For many, many years, we've been exporting this this asset to farmers in Virginia, and they value it at $300 an acre. And if you do the math, we've been exporting $6.5 million worth of free fertilizer which I, I really think if, if I worked for a Fortune 500 company and I walked into the boardroom and I said, this is, our, this is my plan for this asset we have, I'd probably be fired on the spot. But now the utility is completing what will soon be the world's largest thermal hydrolysis digester facility. The technology will turn the sludge left over from wastewater treatment into renewable electricity, along with Class A biosolids, which are virtually free of pathogens and approved for use in almost any setting. Chris Piott walks out to D.C. Water's Demonstration Garden, a tiny plot on the grounds of its Blue Plains facility in southwest D.C. Strawberries and other fruits and vegetables are growing here, but the star of the show is the odorous pile of what looks like wet mulch beside it. Yeah, this is a pretty fresh pile. Uh, If it sits out for another 20 days or so, that odor will go away completely. It's, um, you know, it's sort of the smell of nature. For the most part, he's right. A sensitive nose might be able to tell the difference, but the pile, a mixture of biosolids and wood chips, smells like a cross between cow manure and mulch. Piot plucks some very red strawberries from the garden and hands me one to sample. I hesitate just a second, trying not to picture sewage, and take a bite. It's delicious. We bring out vegetables to meetings and to board meetings, and uh, it's, you know, nothing... Nothing sells the product more than bringing a beautiful bowl of strawberries to a meeting and popping a few in your mouth. 
DC Water is currently testing several different fertilizer mixtures using the new Class A biosolids, with the hope of eventually creating a product that can generate revenue. Milwaukee's Metropolitan Sewerage District has been selling a biosolids-based fertilizer called Milorganite for decades. Home Depot currently sells 36-pound bags at $12 apiece. George Hawkins says DC Water hopes to do something similar. What the price point will be for ours if it's a dollar? That's a dollar of revenue that can supplant ratepayer funds. I mean, the reason we're interested in doing this is, one, it's organic, it's a good thing, we believe it's fundamental recycling, all sorts of good attributes, but it's also raising revenue to support our ratepayers and hopefully defray some of what otherwise would be the next ratepayer increase. Convincing commercial farmers to use D.C. Water's version of Milorganite is one thing. But D.C. Water is also hoping its biosolid products will find their way into community gardens around Washington. D.C.'s Department of Parks and Recreations, which oversees 26 community gardens, is currently surveying garden organizers to gauge their interest in using Class A biosolid fertilizer on their plots. The mere suggestion alarms Steve Soyser, the organizer at Bruce Monroe Community Garden in northwest D.C. We have an excess of organic kitchen scraps and other waste that's available in the city to create our own compost, so we really don't need biosolids. There's no problem that needs to be solved except for D.C. Water's disposal problem. Soyser also has concerns that biosolids aren't as free of contaminants as some would suggest. Using human waste as fertilizer is one thing, he says, but there are lots of other things that find their way into our sewage. I wish people would be more responsible with their waste, with their toxic waste, but they aren't. So putting that onto our food is not the right response. Hawkins and Piat say reactions like Soyser's are based more on emotion than science. Hawkins uses lead concentrations in D.C. Waters biosolids to illustrate his point. EPA has an action standard for this level of lead in soil in an urban area, and um, it's 1,000 parts per million. If it's an area where school children um, would be playing, it's 400 parts per million. Agriculture extension usually say if you have soil that is being used to produce crops, it's 300 parts per million. Ours are 20 parts per million. So it's not zero. There is not a zero risk, but it is extremely low. And we believe far below any levels that would cause a health risk. The numbers are persuasive, but persuasive enough to bridge the wide gap between feces and your favorite farmer's market? Time will tell. I'm Jonathan Wilson. We'll stay with the environment for our next story. It has to do with runoff, the stormwater that flows off our streets and parking lots and into local streams. Runoff is a big source of pollution in the Potomac and Anacostia rivers, and now the district is trying a new approach to deal with it. The D.C. Department of the Environment is launching its own version of a cap-and-trade system for runoff. And as Jennifer Strong found out, the program is giving property owners the chance to make some money in the process. This could be seen as a story about problems. You see, D.C. has a horrible stormwater problem. Each year, the district deals with 11 billion gallons of it washing off parking lots and rooftops. That's roughly enough to fill the National Aquarium 5,000 times, but with polluted water. 
That huge volume of stormwater washing into our streams cuts out the stream channels, it erodes them, it puts all that sediment down into the aquatic habitat. That's Brian Van Wy with the district's stormwater management program. It's partially a volume problem. It's also a problem of all of the stuff that's in the stormwater that comes washing off of those rooftops and parking lots. So pet waste, oil, grease, sediment, trash. Large new developments are required to capture part of their stormwater, but those giant projects tend to be clustered together, causing Van Wy to ask, what about the rest of the city? You know, surely there's a way to take advantage of all that other impervious surface to look for the low-cost opportunities to retrofit that and maybe create some flexibility at the same time for the regulated. Then he had an idea. What if D.C. could treat this polluted water like carbon and make its own version of cap-and-trade? And that's what the city did. It now hosts the world's first credit market for captured stormwater. It's an opportunity for property owners to retrofit their properties, to install green infrastructure, to do something really positive for district's water bodies, and get a financial return for doing it. One property that's embraced this idea is the Westchester. It's a large condo complex near the National Cathedral. Residents here recently added several large rain gardens. Ann Benefield is the general manager. You see a lot of tall grasses in the wintertime, and there's groupings of plants, and there's small evergreen plants in the middle. And then the spring, we get these beautiful purple blooms that come up with lots of color. The city decides how much water projects like these rain gardens can capture, then awards credits to match. The condo doesn't need these credits, and so it sells them to someone who does. For us, that was just pure income of $25,000. The gardens are so successful, the Westchester is adding sidewalks that also capture water. They dig down about eight inches and then put a gravel base and then put the pavers on and fill in the edges so the water goes straight down to the earth. Porous pavement costs two to three times more than regular paving materials, but West argues there are several benefits. They look exactly like a brick sidewalk, but I think they're... They're beautiful, and they've really made a big difference in the appearance and as well as the drainage on the sidewalks, especially in the snow. When icy walkways are salted, the liquid left behind refreezes. That means more salt and more labor before someone falls. Not so with these walkways. When ice melts, the water sinks into the ground. Plus, there's another financial incentive. This was brought on because of the increase in fees from the water company as well as trying to be a good neighbor. So we hired a firm, an engineering firm, to come out and give us ideas of what projects would be the most payback. In addition to credits, property owners who build this kind of green infrastructure also get a discount on the stormwater portion of their water bill each and every month. These are significant fees for the Westchester because we have uh, 11 acres. We have a large area that's considered impervious. So by reducing that, it reduces also our monthly fees as well as having the income from selling the credits. All this makes a lot of sense to Brenna Manion. She's the Director of Regulatory Affairs at NACWA, the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. Stormwater trading isn't altogether so different from carbon trading, except for now you're talking about gallons of water instead of pounds of CO2. Manion says it helps the city comply with EPA rules. It helps property owners make some money. It even helps out developers because it gives them one more way to comply with the law through buying credits they can't easily produce. Sometimes you're just limited by physics. You can only fit so much water in so much space. You know, you might find yourself out of luck. 
This is the first credit market of its kind in the country, but perhaps not for long. Los Angeles is considering following DC's lead and setting up its own credit market for stormwater. I'm Jennifer Strong. Something in the water. We'll end today's show with the story of inventor Robert Fischel. Fischel developed many of the biomedical devices now being used in people's bodies, things like implantable insulin pumps, coronary stents, and miniaturized pacemakers. Now at age 86, he's working on an ambitious project with colleagues at the University of Maryland's Fischel Department of Bioengineering, which he and his family funded to the tune of $31 million. If the project succeeds, it could help solve one of the biggest health issues many people face. Lauren Ober headed to the inventor's home in Dayton, Maryland, to learn more. Robert Fischel's home office is full of stuff. Plaques celebrating some of his 200 U.S. patents, sketches of past inventions, and the innards of medical devices he's currently building. He pulls out a machine the size of a loaf of bread. Uh, This is the device to erase migraine headaches. It's called Spring TMS, Transcranial Magnetic Stimulator. He asks me if I want a demonstration of the machine. The way this works is you press the on-off button. Now it says if you want a treatment, press the button with a cross on it. Then a series of coils gets charged up with electromagnetic energy. Once it's charged, you put the device on the top of your head. Okay, now, but wait just a minute. And you'll see that the capacitors are charged, the bar is full, and you'll hear a beep. Listen. Did you hear the beep? Yeah. So then I take this, I put it on my head, I press the button, and it erases your migraine. That's all. Wait, that's, that's, the, it. that's the extent of the treatment? That's it. Within three to four minutes, the migraine goes away, and the person suffering from the often debilitating pain can go on about her day. It seems so simple. Don't tell anybody, but everything I do is very simple. If it was complicated, I'm sure I couldn't do it. But everything I do is really very simple. The FDA just approved the device for consumer use. Fischel foresees doctors prescribing the machine to patients who would otherwise have to take powerful meds to find any relief. Fischel is one of those people who so obviously loves his job. And how could he not? He's an inventor. His job is to create solutions to problems. Other people see there's a problem. They say, oh, it's a problem. An inventor sees a problem, and he sees an answer. And then if he has the guts, he goes to work on it. Over his 86 years, the inventor has developed solutions to lots of problems, annoying pop-up sprinklers, soggy cereal, and submarine detection, to name a few. But those aren't what he's known for. As a biomedical engineer, Fischel has set his sights on helping keep people alive. Millions of folks around the country are using devices that he invented. Now, in the years when most of his contemporaries are relaxing in retirement, Fischel has embarked on his most ambitious challenge yet. Right now, I am working on a way which I hope 
will eliminate human pain with no side effects. Fischel says it so nonchalantly that it seems like it'll be an easy feat. Of course, that's not taking into account the bear of finding funding and the epic FDA approval process. But he believes in it. In the United States last year, 100 million people were treated for pain at a cost of $600 billion. He's using the same technology that went into his migraine device, but adapting it to deal with pain in places like the foot or the back due to issues like diabetic neuropathy or chemotherapy. The patient would get 100 electromagnetic pulses at the site of the pain. Those 100 pulses try to talk the neurons that send pain messages to the brain to say, you can't do that anymore. Ideally, Fischel says, he and his collaborators would work with the Fischel Department of Bioengineering and the University of Maryland Medical Center to develop the product and send it off into the world. I'm 86 now, and I hope this pain thing is my last project, because I don't want to invent anything more so I can spend some time lying in the sun. But do you actually think that's realistic? Yeah, I know. Maybe I'm being unduly optimistic that I'll be able to turn it off. What he means by turn it off is that Fischel constantly sees drawings in his head of solutions to problems. The circuit diagrams become immediately clear in his mind. His wife calls it cheating. To a degree, though, it's a burden. That's the problem, because if you can change the world for the better, you have some obligation to go and do it. And I guess that's what it is. And the big kick I get is when I see it really working, and I've seen it work. So he'll continue working until he's helped solve all the problems that he can, which likely means he'll work for the rest of his life. I'm Lauren Ober. Want to see Robert Fischel's migraine eradication machine for yourself? You can check it out on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Matt Bush, Jonathan Wilson, Michael Pope, Lauren Ober, and Hans Anderson, along with reporter Jennifer Strong. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Thank you, Memo. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Molly Loray and Jamie Rapp. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org, or check us out on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you an encore presentation of our show all about DC music, from hip-hop to punk to dance tunes inspired by Ethiopia. We'll explore the genres and meet the artists that make our local music scene one of a kind. Rebecca Shears back in the host chair next week. I'm Jacob Fenston, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.